Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, as always, thanks so much for being with us on this fantastic day, whatever day it is you're listening. Man, am I excited about our show today. Today we are speaking with Jackie McNish. Jackie is the author of the book, Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of blackberry as many of us know or crackberries okay depending on how old you are and where you are in the uh spectrum of work life you might have been a crackberry addict you might have never seen them but man what a fantastic story where did they go they were here and then they were gone and that's what we're covering this week losing the signal was shortlisted for the 2015 financial times and mckinsey business book of the year Wall Street Journal, Best Business Book of 2015, Best Business Book by Forbes, the list goes on. Jackie is a senior correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. She's written many books. She's worked at the Globe and Mail, which was a big place up in Canada, which is where she's from. Previously at the Wall Street Journal, now she's back. We talk about that a little bit in the episode because, I mean, it's the Wall Street Journal, you know? What is that like? And I really wanted to ask her, and of course I did. So I really think you're in for a treat. Let us know what you think. At Twitter, we are at SmartPeoplePod. It's pretty much the easiest place to reach us. And by us, I usually mean John. He checks Twitter. I check our emails. 
And speaking of emails, guys, you've heard it. You've heard me talk about it. It is now time for the Smart People Podcast Mastermind. Yes, thank you all to taking the survey. We got a fantastic amount of responses, and there will be a special treat in it for those that took the survey. Don't you worry. We're going to move forward with it, man. You guys love the idea. Your feedback was fantastic. It was spot on with what we thought we could create. So here's what's important to know at this point. The very first Smart People Podcast Mastermind webinar that we do is going to be held Thursday, March 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay? So go ahead and block that off your calendar. Next, it is going to be free for everyone. Of course, we, we're going to be adding things and charging in the future, but this is we just want to show you guys what we're doing. We want to put one out there, see how it goes. And man, we have a fantastic guest. He's been on the show before. Of course, he's an author. He spoke at TED. He's a uh, former executive. I'm not going to give away all the goodies yet. But most importantly, the primary way we're going to be talking about the mastermind and communicating with people is through our newsletter because email is the way to go. Yes, we will be discussing it on the show, but I don't know if you listen to the show the day it comes out and you can't really sign up for a link on the show, right? You're going to have to go to the link we provide and it is live. So it's going to happen and then it's going to be done. And there's going to be a chance to ask the guests questions and there's going to be interaction and it's going to be fantastic and it's going to be free. Head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and in the bottom right-hand corner is our newsletter sign-up, or there's sometimes a pop-up. And just sign up. As you all know, we barely send out emails. It's only when it's really important. In the history of the show, we might have sent out 15, maybe 20. I don't know. Not a ton, right? Again, we will keep you posted, but sign up for that newsletter. And the mastermind is moving forward. We have guests booked. We have ideas. We're building the website. So thank you all again. For your interest. I can't wait to connect with all of you on a more personal level and really get to work on what we want to do, how we're going to do it, and just getting more out of the knowledge in this world that the experts hold. All right. Thanks so much. Going to turn it over now to Jackie. Enjoy this episode as we discuss her book, Losing the Signal. Well, Jackie, first, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I'm excited to speak with you today. It's my pleasure. Let's start out, as we kind of always do, learn a little bit more about you. In the intro, I tell people kind of your bio, if you will, but I like to get the story behind the bio. So you, you know, you're a, a, an author, a journalist. How did that start? Something you always wanted to do? You always enjoy writing, storytelling. What's the story behind that? I think I knew from an early age that um, I was always going to be a writer. Um, I was born in the 50s, so I grew up in the age of letters. And all of our relatives lived far away. And I was particularly close to my grandmother. And I wrote her quite uh, faithfully, uh, at least once every week or every two weeks. And I guess it was, in a way, kind of like a diary for me. And she was a marvelous woman. uh, And she just wrote back and said, you really need to be a writer. And I listened to her because she was a very tough Scot and, you know, was a very practical person. For her to say that writing was a profession meant something to me because mm-hmm. it was sort of out of her comfort zone to say that. So I, I really took that to heart and I 
really just wrote an awful lot of letters when I was in high school. Um, I worked on the very small, very frail student newspaper and the same in university. Uh, I thought of journalism school, but I got very good advice and uh, I decided to do history and political science uh, at a school where there was a very robust journalism school, Carleton University uh, here in Canada in Ottawa, and uh, got very involved in the student newspaper. Why do you think that that was good advice? I mean, most people would think I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to journalism school. It was good advice because um, she was, for all her toughness and practicalness, um, recognized that if you didn't love what you do, um, you would be wasting your talents. And she, she recognized a talent that was you know, at the time considered very impractical because it's very hard to make your living as an author. Right. And the best advice I got from my father was, well, if that's what you're going to do, um, make sure that, you know, you have a broad general education so that if the journalism thing doesn't work out, you have something to fall back on. Interesting. What I'm actually wondering is, because we deal with this a lot as well, as you said, it, wa it wasn't a practical thing, and it's very difficult to make it as a writer. And so I often ask people, what made you think that you could be the one to make it as a writer? And was it just was it just the fact that your grandmother said you'd be good at it? You kind of put your head down and went towards it? Or how'd that work? You know, it's, it's always very incremental. Uh, I, I have probably been a very impractical author in the sense that I never had a plan. I never had a mission. I really just wanted to write. And um, I got a real taste of it in a student newspaper. We had a very robust one that was uh, um, a weekly publication at Carleton University, and I eventually became the editor. And to this day, the people that I worked with on that paper were some of the brightest and most interesting people that I've ever worked with. And when you're on a student newspaper, as anyone out there who has been on one, is that there's really your only limits are your own ability because there's no one restraining you from what you can or can't do. So it was a, a really terrific experience. It really just got in my blood. I just loved it. And I was lucky enough to get some very good jobs in journalism. My summer job was with the Globe and Mail, which is the national newspaper here in Canada. So I immediately started uh, from a very good base. Uh, do you work for uh, or write for the Wall Street Journal right now? Yes, I'm, I was with the Globe and Mail. Um, I had a bit of a, I, I bounced around a bit in, earlier in my career. I was a summer student at the Globe and Mail. Uh, it was a year that two national newspapers had folded. Uh, the only place hiring was a very small weekly publication called the Financial Times of Canada. And um, I was so arrogant and young that when my uh, future boss hired me at the Financial Times. He said, what are your long-term plans? I said, I have no intention of being a business reporter. I can't wait to get back into news. Um, and as it turned out, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. The guy, you know, despite my arrogance, hired me anyway. And at the time, in the you know early 80s, this was when business journalism was coming of age. Uh, it was the era of Mike Milken, Ivan Boski, the great Wall Street scandals, and it was a fascinating time. And so for four years, I got really, really good education. You know, you're a young reporter at a small publication. They give you a lot of responsibility. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did notice me, and they hired me to work in their Toronto bureau in the 80s. And, yeah, I was really hooked because at that time, business journalism had expanded into the personalities. It got away from the minutia of earnings and stock results to who are these people behind business. And turns out they were colorful, there were lots of criminals, and lots of great stories and conflict. Mm. And uh, so I worked at the journal for uh, five years, 
and then the, uh, the the Globe and Mail hired me to be a sort of a senior uh, a correspondent for them. I was a New York bureau chief for a couple of years, and then came back here and was at the Globe for twenty seven fabulous years. Wow! And then uh, now, just recently, moved to back to the Journal, right? That's right. They hired me in October. It was a tough decision for me to make, but you know, I felt like I had unfinished business at the Wall Street Journal. And the other issue is business is increasingly global. And we were feeling that in Canada. We've had a number of our major companies taken over. And it was getting harder and harder to be the paper of record. The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Reuters were beefing up their teams in Canada and, you know, had more resources to bring to the stories. So there was more frustration. And I now work for a paper that has the best global reach of any business media outlet in the world. And it's just a fantastic opportunity. Absolutely. And and that's why I was kind of honing in on it. I have, so, I mean, we could do an entire episode on just writing for the journal. I, uh, at heart, am a finance and business nerd, went to school for finance always since I was 14. My dad gave me about $1,000 and said, go ahead and invest in the stock market. And of course, that was uh, like close to the the tech, you know, everything. So I made some money, then lost it all, and I was hooked. But <laughs> but I don't like big cities, and I was never going to move to New York City. The reason well, I say that is because... That's a great lesson. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I am fascinated by it, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, first, though, what struck me is you said, you know, the 80s were great because you got to write about and learn about the great Wall Street scandals. And you said there were lots of criminals and I find that extremely interesting. Somebody who, you know, I was born in the 80s, so I don't know a lot about business then, but we would associate, when I say we, maybe millennials, right now with great Wall Street scandals and crooks and criminals. How? Do, what is your view, since you have kind of a longer-term view um, of what Wall Street is now and, and how criminal it can be versus, say, the 80s? You know, I think there's always been rogues and charlatans on Wall Street or in any financial capital of the world. I think it is the nature of the business, the single-minded focus on making money, you know, makes people test the limits. And I think for a long time, the industry was run um, by a club that took care of itself. If someone got out of line, they were either ejected from the stock exchange um, or disciplined by internal by internal regulators. I mean, do not forget the you know the financial crisis, the stock market crash of 1929. I mean, that was uh, a house of cards, and there were a lot of nefarious activities and people, including even reporters, who were in the pockets of stock promoters. It was a very uh, a, you know bad moment in the history of of capital capitalism uh, around the world. So you get these. Uh, eruptions, these dark periods of behavior. And I think it's almost inevitable. I think what's different now is that basically, you know, from the 80s to today, I think that it has been a constant series of crises. And the other difference is that you have a much more objective media, a much more competitive media, and a much more uh, educated, professional, and effective set of regulators. Yes, everyone missed the financial crisis, the the subprime crisis and structured loans. Um, you know, they didn't understand it. Nobody paid attention to it. Hopefully we're learning from it. But the good news is, is that we're still reading about it in great detail in the press. And while very few people have been convicted and gone to jail, 
the regulators are working their way through it. They are finding companies. Banks are much more constrained than they were today. Mm -hmm. It was a very unregulated time. And I think that that's what happens when there is a lack of regulation, a lack of supervision. Uh, these things will almost happen inevitably. So, I mean, I think you kind of answered the question there. And just given your long time, you know, take and stance and writing and understanding of business, are you kind of pro regulation or, you know, oftentimes I'll talk to people who say, no, deregulate, let people you know, let capitalism work. And that always blows my mind. But but I'm here to hear your end of the story. Obviously, uh, the the wheels of capitalism are essential to the way our countries are run. I think a lot of things do work. I think regulation is necessary. And I think that for a while, I think the industry felt that it was smarter and insulated and capable of doing things in a way that in retrospect they shouldn't have been doing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they're learning their lessons. I think if you have vigilant supervision and regulation, it can work, but it doesn't always. The market is smarter, faster than the regulators. They'll always be yes. steps ahead. And that's why it's great to be a journalist because <laughs> these are great stories. There's great conflicts, great lessons to be learned. Absolutely. And you know, you mentioned something there and I knew this, I don't know if I was planning on talking about it, but you are Canadian and um, writing about global business. So I think you have a unique perspective outside of a lot of our listeners. We have a global, global audience. I mean, literally almost every country in the world, but obviously the majority being in America. I'm just wondering kind of how you feel you might view things differently as a Canadian as opposed to an American, if you have thought about that. Well, I do think about it a lot because I'm actually a dual citizen. I was born uh, in Canada, but my father worked for General Electric. So um, oh, I grew up in Morrison, Illinois, Schenectady, New York. Oh, my time. gosh. Schenectady? My, my mom is from Schenectady. Well, it's, we lived on Montclair Drive, and, oh. and my dad was uh, at that time a consultant to General Electric. Wow. And, and in Canada, and we've lived in New York. So I think the perspective I bring is more sort of a cross-border perspective, um, Canadians tend to have a more international outlook because we are a small country and a small, uh, a small economy that's very much affected by international trade and international news. So we always tend to look at it. So my, you know, um, I think it's really important to have a global perspective and not to be insular and understand what's going on in the world. And I, you know, the, the great thing that I would say about America is that when America has a problem, it can put its mind to it and fix it in a way that few other countries can. And I look forward to that happening in the next few years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Trust me, I'm right there with you. At the risk of losing more listeners, because I got a an email about my political leans, I guess, recently. But um, just a quick question, and I don't mean to lead here, but what are your thoughts on the potential of having somebody like Donald Trump run America. I try not to uh, uh, take a stand politically. The one thing I would say about Donald Trump is that Donald Trump represents a portion of the American electorate who feels disenfranchised. Mm. You know, a middle class, a working class that long felt their government represented them no longer feels that way. From their point of view, Washington is broken and has been taken over by financial interests. I was recently in Des Moines and uh, I had a, a, a cab driver and I asked him why in Des Moines they'd be supporting someone like Donald Trump who was a New York business who'd won some and lost some. Right. 
And he said the way he feels about the Republican Party today is that all the candidates should wear NASCAR jumpsuits with their badges showing the businesses that are backing them because they feel the system has become corrupted and directed primarily towards the interests of, you know, either billionaires, hedge funds or businesses. I'm not saying that's a right or wrong perspective, but it is the perspective. And he is a reflection of that. Uh, And I think that America needs to listen to that. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I appreciate that. And so now I want to get back to you at the Wall Street Journal. Um, what's a what's a day like there? I mean, what does it mean to be a journalist at, as you mentioned, the largest global business media uh, company, I guess, or, or medium, at least content medium in the world? Uh, I think I'm incredibly lucky. Um, business is global. We could be writing a story about Bombardier, which is a Canadian company that has trouble with a new jet series. And I'm dealing with reporters in Paris, in Chicago, that are experts in the aerospace industry. They bring so much intelligence. The, the, the journal takes a global perspective on almost everything. When I worked at the Wall Street Journal in the 80s, the Canadian Bureau, which has seven reporters, uh, was a satellite of an American newspaper. Today, we are part of a network of global or global newsrooms across the, the country, and it's a fantastic place to work. Uh, it's incredibly inspiring seeing what my colleagues do, and it's also inspiring to see what they invest in new technology on the internet, on new platforms, and how they're always thinking about how can we push this forward. Sure. And have you noticed, given your long-standing, uh, you know, career in media, have you noticed or felt the effects of the shift from print to online? You know, it's interesting because when I was at the Wall Street Journal in the '80s. We had two masters. One was the ticker, which for those of you that were, were born after after the 1980s was a tall brown machine that spewed out a, a roll of newsprint um, like a teletype and banged out just headlines. It was like the Twitter of its time for the business world. Short, <laughs> brief headlines, all caps, you know, saying, you know, the Dow Jones index fell 200 points or General Motors, you know, declared a, you know, reported a decline in its income. And it was sort of this gray business, but it was a very competitive business because if you went to a press conference and there was breaking news and you were with the Wall Street Journal, you had to keep your eye on the Reuters reporter. And in those days, you had to run to something called a payphone to file <laughs> in the breaking news. So there was always this race to feed sort of the, you know, the, 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 the momentary beast, the second by second you know, thrasher that wanted to be fed constantly with news. So I always was used to that process of breaking news, filing it, and then working on the bigger stories. And it it served me well in my career. And that's really, really all that websites are. They're a glorified version of what that ticker was. And you just got to be first, you got to get it right, and you got to be smart. Um, So it's it keeps you in the mix. And then you can stand back because there are enough journalists at the Wall Street Journal that when you have a bigger story that your editors are convinced is important, you can really dig deep into it. Right. Actually, and, and uh, last question on this topic, and we'll move into your book, but h- how are topics decided on at something like the Wall Street Journal? I- I'm wondering kind of how set is your day? Do you go to an office, you have somebody who says, here's what you're going to write on, or do you have people who you bring it to, no matter how passionate you are, they can shoot it down? I mean, are, are you working for the man, essentially? 
Oh, it's great teamwork. It's often a very collective process. Um, you really have to work well as a team when you've only got seven reporters covering an entire country. And uh, the news cycle in, in Canada is very robust and has been lately with a new federal government. I'll give you an example. Last Friday, oh, Friday a week ago, um, we had a terrible uh, school shooting in northern Saskatchewan, little uh, um, Aboriginal community called Laloche. And news broke at five o'clock. There were three of us uh, in the newsroom and it was all hands on deck and everyone trying to reach people in the community, the RCMP and the government to find out what's going on. And, you know, we all looked around at 10 o'clock and we'd all just worked full out to help as best we could. One of my colleagues in Ottawa literally jumped on a plane and was, you know, took her 18 hours to get to this little community, but she did. Um, and that's how it works. And the great thing about it is the teamwork and the devotion to getting the story as right as you can, mm. while you know you're dealing with hundreds of media outlets in Canada. And we did okay. You know, not to go to a somber place, but the school shooting, which I was unaware of, and I would like to say it's because, or not like to, but I, I would first posit to say it's because it was in Canada. And again, as an American, we just think about ourselves. But there are many that happen in America, or maybe not many, but there are some that happen in America that don't get the coverage they should. As a Canadian, well, I mean, Canadian and an American, do you see these the difference in gun culture? And does it happen as much in Canada? School no, you can count on one hand the number of school shootings in the history of Canada. So it's very rare. So that's a big deal, the one it's that a, just happened. It was a big deal, and uh, uh, four people were killed, and that's a big number for Canada. Wow. Um, th we do have gun controls. You do have to register. This was a native community where um, you know Aboriginal life is defined by hunting and other things, so guns are in the mix. The, right. The broader problem is just the complex social problems in native communities with um, uh, struggles with mental illness, sure. isolation, uh, substance abuse, very, very complex. So it was an opportunity to explore those issues. Guns just are not present in Canada. Yeah. I don't know anyone in my very large circle of friends that even has a gun. That's unusual in Canada. Wow. So it's a much smaller gun population. It's a much, um, uh, you know, much less um, contentious issue. Um, and, you know, therefore, there are just much fewer uh, incidents like this. Thank heavens. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. Listen up. We all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and do it faster. There is no one definitive way to accomplish that. So we devise our own methods to make things work. Igloo can help you keep doing things your way, only better. Collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Igloo provides corporate communications, team collaboration, knowledge management, and social workflow. Head over to their website and check it out today. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com slash smartpeople. Thank you to the fine folks over at Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode of Smart People Podcast. And now back to the episode. Well, thanks for that. And and just to state, look, I'm not going to get into it. I wasn't judging, I, you know, not judging your views or anybody's views. I just wanted to know because when I have people with other perspectives, I want to hear them. So that's just my statement, my maybe FCC statement or something like okay. that. <laughs> All right, Jackie. So what put me on your radar or what put you on my radar 
is your recent book, Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. And I want to talk about that. First and foremost, I so I graduated college in 2005 and the iPhone had not yet arrived. I was in finance at the time. The BlackBerry was the CrackBerry and I saw it. I saw the rise and fall. And so when I saw your book, I was like, what? Got to hear about it. So first, what made you want to write about this story? Um, I think it was the great untold story. We started to pay attention to it at the Globe and Mail. My colleague, Sean Silkoff, who is also my co-author on the book, um, Sean really dug into it and began to pursue the story. And you've got to remember that um, around 2009, 2010, the company was starting to fall apart. It was being... um, outdistance by Apple and Samsung and it was sort of the great untold story and research in motion now known as Blackberry was based in Waterloo Ontario just a little rural community about an hour and a half uh, uh, west of Toronto had very um, the media the major media had very limited access to the company they tightly controlled it the, the community around it was very loyal never spoke negatively about it So nobody really understood why it had done so badly. So the narrative became, one, they were arrogant, they were stupid, they didn't pay attention to what was happening. And two, one of the co-CEOs, Jim Belsilli, was preoccupied trying to buy a hockey team and didn't care. So that was sort of the narrative. And we knew there was more to it. And, you know, we were very, very determined to be at the Globe and Mail to be the paper of record on this story. And it took over a year to start breaking down the walls. And we had a couple of things go our way. One, the two co-CEOs, Mike Lazaridis, one of the co-founders of the company, and Jim Balsilli had left. Uh, there was a new CEO. There had been board changes. And uh, they had failed dramatically with a new phone uh, in about sort of the 2013 period. And the company was spiraling down. And it was so bad, it looked like it was going to be sold for parts. So in 2013, we, we ran a, a big investigation on what went wrong, and we took a look at some of the errors they made and how they responded to Apple. And that story went viral in a way that a story from the Globe and Mail seldom does. And it went so viral that all the blogs out there that were writing about it, one of them, Harry McCracken, uh, said, uh, you know, these guys ought to write a book. We get a call from Howard Yoon in Washington, an agent uh, for Ross Yoon, saying, wow, Time Magazine says you guys should write a book. Why don't you do it? And uh, we thought about it and recognized that this was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity you know, to tell you know, such a compelling global story. And um, it was very, very, very interesting and rich, the narrative at that point, but it turns out we only knew a fraction of what would become a much bigger story. Wow. Well, let's talk about that initial article that kicked this off, because I think one of the most fascinating parts of the story is Apple. I mean, and I don't mean Apple, but I, I just mean the competition, the, I mean, Steve Jobs versus these two CEOs, if you will. So uh, that or- original article, what was the main premise? What did you find out in that? The main focus of that story was to tell the story of a poor, ill-fated phone called the Storm. The Storm was 
a, a phone that was um, uh, commissioned by Verizon, one of the big carriers in the United States. And Verizon looked at Apple, looked at the iPhone and the success it was having in 2009 and said, we need, we need an Apple killer. We need an iPhone killer. And they went to BlackBerry and said, you know, you need to, uh, you know, make a phone for us. And that's all we knew about that part of the story at that time. There's more that will be revealed later. And what happened is they produced the Storm, which was a touchscreen phone that was made to act and click in a tactile way like the BlackBerry, because Mike Lazaridis, the inventor, the great technological uh, expert in sort of computing and, and, and you know, data transmissions, um, didn't want, didn't want to give up the keyboard, but if they were going to go touchscreen, he wanted to create a pivot that clicked in the tactile way that a keyboard does. And their mistake in, you know, their, one of their many mistakes was believing that they could get it out in nine months, uh, you know, a whole new interface, a whole new approach and series of apps. And they raced it so much that the thing was just a disaster when they made sort of the, um, uh, sort of the test storm phones they worked beautifully but they had sort of been handcrafted in the lab oh. when they were manufactured um it was a complete failure they ended up having a 99.9 percent return of deeply dysfunctional phones and that's what we focused on the failure the mechanical failure of the phone the returns and how that led to just a, a you know a downward spiral in terms of the leadership uh, in terms of the board's concerns, and in terms of the market's perception that this great company that had created this phone that everyone loved um, was no longer able to produce good materials. It was like the first big dent in that sterling still, silver reputation wow. for product perfection. Did, so the storm actually went to market? It absolutely did. There, You know, uh, Sean and I both give speeches all over the world about the BlackBerry because there's a huge interest and huge audience out there. And every time we ask who had a storm, there's always, you know, at least 25% of the room had them. And I never even heard of it. They turned their phones and they all raised their hands. It was a dark moment. Oh my gosh. Never even heard of it. So uh, that was, what year was that? Did you say 2010? Around 2009 was when the storm came out. So I made my number slightly off on that. Was that really when BlackBerry lost the majority of their market share? That was the beginning of the end. It's not. Wow. They still. They were still growing uh, dramatically uh, in Indonesia, in India, uh, Africa. It was incredible um, how much demand they had, and and that you know. I know you're going to ask me what the lessons are. I think <laughs> one of the big points we make in this book is that what most people don't realize is that this company went from zero to $20 billion in less than a decade. It had one manufacturing plant in Waterloo. It is an overnight success after the BlackBerry is introduced in 1998, and the world can't get enough of it. It was the must-have status symbol of the working professional. So it was really interesting how fast that demand took hold. And, you know, we call it too much, too fast. The company couldn't keep up with demand and they had to scale to keep up with it. And while they were scaling to keep up with this demand, adding another four plants to their network of production, Apple was starting to eat their lunch. Uh -huh. and, you know, so they had, you know, they had two choices. 
keep up with demand or stop everything, pivot, and focus everything on the Apple. That's a pretty hard sell to a board of directors when your stock is rising exponentially every month. You're having your best year ever, and you can't keep up with demand. And that is sort of the core of the BlackBerry story. Yeah, I mean, if you put it like that, I, even knowing what I know now, I, I still think if I'm in that room, I go, no, 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 don't pivot. Look, we're growing. And so I, I don't know how anybody could justify pivoting entirely. Well, I think people can justify it if they have a track record. People can justify it if they have enough resources and you have a sophisticated board of directors and an experienced global team in your management. When Sean and I were first writing the book and we made our proposal, I mean, our working title between the two of us was the startup that never grew up. It never had a chance to grow up. Apple is fighting this battle now with smartphones. Smartphone sales are starting to slow down. Mm -hmm. But it's an experienced global company with incredible resources and incredible experience at pivoting. It pivoted from computers to smartphones. It's done this before. It's got an experienced executive team. Mm. BlackBerry was Mike and Jim and a couple of other senior executives, one from Motorola and one from AT&T, that had only been hired within a few years of the success of the BlackBerry. There just wasn't enough leadership, strength, direction, unification, cohesion, uh, and experience to make it work. So when you discuss, you know, this was the moment they could have pivoted or something like that to, to take on Apple, would the idea at that time be we need to create a, a touchscreen or a more – I know I read that like um, the, the two CEOs, Balsili and, and Lazaridis, their take was the BlackBerry needed to be less, not more, basically a pocket email machine. Right. right. And so, that's a very important point okay. because your generation and the younger generation that's very dismissive of the BlackBerry, understandably at many levels, and loves the iPhone, doesn't understand that when the BlackBerry was introduced in 1998, its greatest achievement was that it worked on a very primitive network. The bandwidth on networks in the 1990s was so primitive that when you downloaded a photo, you would start the download process and come back an hour later and it would still be downloading. <laughs> there was no bandwidth. And the genius behind the BlackBerry and Mike's innovation was that there's, it's based on packet technology so that packets go out in increments when you're sending your, your email messages. And he knew that by sending these things out in packets, um, in, 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 you know, when, the, when the network had the capacity would minimize would minimize the strain on the system. He was all about conservation of data on these networks. So that's the environment that Mike, the traditional engineer, grew up in. And it's really, you know, to underline that point, when Steve Jobs walked onto that stage in 2007 and waved the iPhone in front of everyone, he looked at it and he looked at the, the you know, Steve Jobs' presentation of, you're going to be able to browse the internet. You're going to download photos, videos, music. It's going to be a whole new world. It's going to be a, a computer effectively in your hand. He looked at it and said, this is an impossibility. Uh. It's nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. It will kill the networks. And you know what? For two years, he was right. In the, in the sort of the late 2008, you know, 2009 period, Everyone was screaming at Apple. Everyone is, was screaming at the carriers because calls were dropped all the time. Mm. 
what Mike misunderstood and what Blackberry misunderstood was a, was a very brilliant stroke on Steve Jobs' part. And this, I think, is the core of the Blackberry lesson. It's not the technology that really makes the difference competitively. It's how you change the rules of the game, how you use that technology to change the rules of the game. And Steve Jobs hated the carriers. He called them the four orifices. You couldn't get anything down their pipelines without the carrier's permission. Wait, well, what did he call them? The four what? The four orifices. Oh. <laughs> you could not get anything down their pipelines without the carrier's permission. And that was BlackBerry's challenge. They couldn't even put apps out without their permission. And they put sleeper apps out on software upgrades that overloaded the system. So the carriers controlled everything back then. You couldn't put an app on your phone without their permission. So that was BlackBerry's environment. What Steve Jobs did on 2007 is that when he walked out to that stage in San Francisco, he brought out with him the head of AT&T's mobile division. And he announced a five-year exclusive contract with Apple to sell the iPhone. And in exchange for that, for that advantage, AT&T invested billions of dollars in new networks. It took a couple of years for them to upgrade their networks to come up and get the capacity that you needed to effectively run the iPhone. That's what changed the world, that deal. And what has happened since then has been one of the greatest transfers of wealth from the carriers to Apple. Apple's market cap is now greater than all of the carriers at that time. Oh my gosh. So if I understand, and there's, there's some technology buffs out there going, geez, Chris, you are just a layman. But (laughs) I mean, I can hear it, especially John, my, my producer, he, um, he, he loves this stuff. He probably knows the whole story, but so they basically said, look together, like Steve jobs went to AT&T and said, together, we will boost we will take some of the market share but essentially what happened is after that five-year period and all the carriers existed on the same plane apple stood above any other mobile technology it did and there's another there's another interesting element to this story and that is that google at the time that steve jobs was on stage in 2007 had two secret projects one was project sooner which was a keyboard smartphone and the other was an android uh, touchscreen phone and on that day they looked uh, they were watching it from the googleplex uh, in a secret room and they were watching the steve jobs webcast and they understood immediately that project sooner was project history wow and they immediately focused on the android touchscreen it took them a while to get it out so they got into the race pretty soon after that and of course their genius again changing the rules was an open system. They opened their operating system to the world. And as we now know, Samsung leapt on that. Low-cost provider occupied the lower-cost phone uh, space. And so they ate, they ate up the, you know, the, the lower-cost end of the market while Apple sees the higher-cost, higher-end end of the market. And BlackBerry just slowly began to wither because it could not move fast enough to get the touchscreen phone uh, that the market was clamoring for. Wow. Well, I mean, you you kind of stole this question from me earlier because I'm sure you get it all the time. But, you know, any other lessons for entrepreneurs that we haven't touched on thus far that really jumped out to you? Because this is a massive failure slash sad story, but innovate. It's it's incredible. So any lesson that we missed? There's there's so many of them. I think that this will be 
the case study for the ages. We live in an era of disruption. Mm -hmm. And the BlackBerry story is the mother of all disruption stories. The smartphone race was the most brutish, difficult, bloody war that we have seen uh, in, you know, in, in decades. The only parallel would be the introduction of television in the 1950s. The penetration of the market from zero to more than 50% of consumers um, is very similar to that of the television. It happened very quickly. Uh, and that was a very brutish competition. It's the same uh, for the smartphone race. It's for all intents and purposes over. Everything that you could do with a smartphone has effectively been done. You know, you might be able to get into the Internet of all things and, you know, turn off your, your furnace sure. or your phone or your sprinklers on. But there's not much more you can do. So the question, so the lessons, there's two lessons I would say. One is that the race is never over. Today's leader is tomorrow's loser. And the positions keep changing place because the pace of innovation is so fast today. It's getting faster and faster. And one of the reasons is the barriers to entry are coming down with so much of innovation based on software and, and technology. Um, you don't need to make the, the billion-dollar investment in plant and equipment. Um, you can be a young graduate from Stanford and create an app that can you know, seize the world or, or whatever it is that you're doing. So that's, that's one, the, the hyper-competitive short-termness of every innovation uh, is changing the way we compete, and the long-term consequences of this are still undone. I, I really think that we are looking at you know, the, you know, the equivalent of you know, the industrial revolution of our age, and it's going to take many more decades for it um, to, to, to carry on. And in that environment, I think the big lesson is leadership matters. Leadership matters more than ever. You are, you've got strong leadership on your board of directors, sophistication, knowledge of technology. BlackBerry didn't have that. Mm. A lot of its directors were either small-town businessmen locally. Very few of them had technology experience. And they were a captive audience to Mike and Jim, who were superheroes in Canada for what they had accomplished. Mm -hmm. So they were reluctant to question them. The other leadership failure at BlackBerry was Mike and Jim, this great combination of two unlikely CEOs, one a very cunning Harvard grad, businessman, brilliant salesman, brilliant technician, and you've got Mike Lazaridis, the inventor who created the BlackBerry, beat everyone else who was racing to create this thing because he made this simple, easy, intuitive product. And they started to fall apart as the company started to fall apart. Um, I won't go into all of the details, but mm. let's just say they had a lot of things go wrong. And when you've got two very different co-CEOs and you're pulled in different directions and you have different ideas, it, it creates a very difficult environment internally where you have silos, competing interests, and most of all, most damaging at all, uh, a confusing sense of where the company is going, which creates a malaise at all levels. And in that environment, faced with the competition, the brutal competition and change that they were faced with, they could not really keep up with the race. Absolutely. And and all of that, especially the relationship between the two CEOs, is covered brilliantly in your book. Again, it's Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry. Jackie, I, I know you're busy. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. 
Um, before we let you go, wanted to see, you know, where can people read what you put out there? What do you have a website? Are you on social? Let us know. Uh, I am on Twitter at Jackie McNish, J A C Q U I E M C N I S H. I have a profile on about me and we do have a Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash losing the signal for the book. And uh, I hope everyone enjoys it. Fantastic. Well, Jackie, again, thank you so much. And I will be sure to reach out and let you know when the episode goes live and I'll send you a link and, uh, and we really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for your enthusiasm. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jackie McNish. This is Amanda, John's amazing girlfriend, in for a guest outro on today's episode. Jackie's book, Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of BlackBerry, is available on Amazon and at your local bookstore. If you purchase the book through Amazon, don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Looking to help out the show? We can always use your help with reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Head over there, leave a review, comment, and rating. We greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please shoot Chris and John an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message them on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Stay tuned for all the great episodes coming up. Visit smartpeoplepodcast.com and we will see you all next week. We'll be right back.